Some of you are here today are people on the run. I don't know what you're running from. I suppose there are some of you here who are running from your past. There are some who maybe are running from the law. But there are likely some of you here today who are running from God. Well, I have good news for you. The good news is that there is a brief but entire book of the Bible devoted to you. It's called the Epistle of Philemon. It's a short treatise dealing with a man named Onesimus who was on the run. This man had now found Christ, and he didn't want to be on the run anymore. He wanted to stop running, he wanted to stop hiding, and he wanted to take up his place in the master's house. And as we wind our way toward the end of our Through the Bible series today, we will look at this brief 25-verse writing that Christo just recently read for us. That is the third shortest book in the Bible. Let's pray. Lord. We heard Christo read the words. We know what the words mean to our brains. We know how to think. We know how to think about what we hear. But what about our hearts, Lord? What about our hearts? What about that place in us that does long for you, does want to know that you're near, does want to stop running? What about that part of us, Lord? It's that that I pray for, Lord, not that my words would be eloquent or convincing at all, but that you would use these words to open, repair our hearts, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philemon is toward the end of the New Testament. As always, if you've been here any length of time and been in this series, you know I like to start by talking about the context of the book because the context is a larger picture, larger circumstance in which a book is set, and it's a big part of our understanding what the words actually mean. Three points of context for the book of Philemon that I think will really help you get what's being said here. And first, that it was written by Paul while he was under military guard. Now, if you look at verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he opens by saying, it's Paul, and I'm a prisoner right now. One of five things that he wrote, letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Paul was in prison a couple different, three different times. And uh, on this case, he was under house arrest, called house arrest. Now, that doesn't mean he was wearing an ankle bracelet. That doesn't mean he was just reporting to his probation officer every week. It meant that he was in a house and there were Roman guards standing watch over him. You know what I'm talking about? Can you picture the big dudes from the Charlton Heston movies, right, with the pointy spears and all that? That's what was going on. That's what was going on with Paul right now. He wrote this letter to a man named Philemon, who was a believer in the city of Colos. And uh, if we look at verse, just keep reading, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and verse 2 says, to Aphia, which very likely was Philemon's wife, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And so he wrote this to Philemon, who was likely a well-to-do believer in the city of Colos. He was likely well-to-do, I think, 
for two reasons. One, because the church was meeting in his home, right? And so he must have had a space or a courtyard maybe, something large enough in order for him to get picked to be, let's have it at, let's have it at Philemon's house. And uh, also I think we can assume that he was well-to-do because as you can see from this very letter, he had servants, didn't he? That's kind of what the book's about. He had servants. And so um, this letter was one that was probably carried with the letter to Colossians. So remember when we looked at the, the letter to Colossians, the church in the city of Colossus, then, then probably this Philemon was carried as a letter of recommendation for Onesimus along with, along the, with the, uh, the epistle that we now call the book of Colossians. It was written on behalf of this runaway slave named Onesimus. In verse 10 of the text, he says, I appeal to you, he's talking to Philemon, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So he, he is a runaway slave. He was, had been a slave in the household of Philemon, and now he needs a letter that he'd run away. We don't know why he ran away. Some speculate that he may have stolen money from Philemon. If you look at verse 18 of the text, because Paul says, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So maybe he's saying, you know, I know he stole from you. I will pay for his debt. I will cover his crime. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Someone who says, I will cover your crime. I will pay your debt. A debt that Onesimus could not pay for himself. What a picture. Tell me who the picture's of. Well done. Onesimus apparently came to Christ while visiting Paul, who was in prison. Paul was either in prison in Ephesus or Rome, likely in Rome. And so um, Paul, uh, Onesimus came to visit him while he was there. And uh, perhaps Onesimus had run to Rome because that was a common place for, for fugitives and stuff to, you know, such to run to. Because if you want to hide somewhere, where do you go? Do you go to the country? No, you go to the city. Right? And the experts say this today, that if you really want to hide, in case any of you are on the run, go, don't go out into the country where people can notice you. Go into the city where no one will notice you. And so it's, it's, it's possible that Onesimus had run to Rome, and while he was there, he heard that Paul was there. He either would have known Paul or known about Paul because the church met in his master's home, right? And so he ran to him. For whatever reason, possibly as part of his escape, possibly he thought Paul might even protect him. But if you look at verse 10 again, he says, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Now we already saw that Paul called Timothy his son. We saw that he called Titus his son. But that was a little different, wasn't it? Keep reading on. Who became my son while I was in chains. So he came and he came to Christ. He came to Christ when he came and visited now we have a problem, though, don't we? This man Philemon that he loves, and he has his slave, who now came to Christ. Lucy, we got some explaining to do now, right? What do we do now? This can really complicate things, can't it? Because now suddenly Philemon is being imposed upon to show some level of grace 
because Onesimus is now a believer. You ever been in a position like that? Something was demanded of you, some forgiveness, some grace. It was tough, wasn't it? It was tough. Praise be to God that He gives us the grace in order to be able to do that, to bring that forgiveness, to extend that grace to others. So Paul is appealing here to Onesimus to take him back as his servant, but as you heard Christo read, not just as his servant, but now as his brother in Christ. That's the context. Man, it begs a huge question, doesn't it? You've got a slave a slave in Paul's hands, and he's commending him to be returned to his master. And you got this question, does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? You want the short answer, then I'll give the explanation? The short answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, and it was not a good thing. The Israelites were again enslaved as captive to the Babylonians for 70 years, and it was not a good thing. At the time of this writing in Philemon, there were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and they were brutally and unmercifully treated. So slavery is not a good thing. Many societies throughout history have practiced some form of enslavement. We know that. And I believe that's because there is something despicable in the unredeemed heart of man that wants to control others. There is something despicable in our unredeemed heart that thinks it can control other people. And even stopping short of slavery, there's something prideful in us, there's something inside of us that is deplorable that thinks it can control other people. There is something so deplorable in people that it makes them think that they can look at other human beings as chattel. And you might be asking, but what about all the references to slavery in the Bible? What are we going to do with that? Well, let's start with the Old Testament. Let's begin there. And I want to point out at the outset that what you read in the Old Testament about a thing called slavery, that is a relationship between masters and slaves, is drastically different than the horrific slavery in America and Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's not even the same thing. By comparison, if you look at the Old Testament, you would... You know, and as you're looking back through history through the eyes of the deplorable time in our history where we enslaved people, you wouldn't even call it the same thing. You would probably call it something like servanthood. And let me let me explain. Um, the the rules, the laws in the Old Testament governing the nature of this servanthood or slavery were very clear. And they made provision for a relationship that was nothing like what we think about when we think about slavery in our history or in the history of other parts of the world. 
It was somehow part of the fabric of the economy under very strict supervision. You see, there was an option that exists in these times where if a person fell on completely hard times, they could sell themselves into this thing called slavery. They had no other option for taking care of themselves. There was no unemployment. There was no social service. They were out of options for being able to provide for themselves and their families. And so there was an option in the Old Testament that one could sell himself into slavery and become then a slave in a person's household. Now, when they came in as this servant in a person's household, it's true they made no money. They had no income, but they and their family were taken into the household and treated as such. It was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. I'm not taking anything off of that. But I'm saying it was different than what we think about when we think about slavery in American history. If you read the book in particular of Deuteronomy, you will find that excessive force for correcting or directing a servant is forbidden, even to the point that if a a master strikes a slave and kills the slave, the master must be killed as well. That sounds a little different, doesn't it? If you keep reading, you read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that if a slave escapes according to, because of this abuse in the household, that if they escape, that the one who receives them is not only bound to welcome them, but they are bound to protect them and not return them to the master. That sounds different, doesn't it? If you read, you will see that that the Levitical law required that every seventh year, slaves would be offered their freedom. And not only their freedom, but they, were, but they were required to be given a sum of money so that they could get a fresh start. That sounds different, doesn't it? And I think also what makes it different is that a great majority of the slaves, when offered their freedom, didn't take it. That sounds different, doesn't it? When you go to the New Testament, you say, well, what about Paul's instructions to how slaves and masters should relate to each other? My sense is that as I read those, and Paul, Paul is taking a huge step in trying to turn a very large cultural ship, because slavery was ingrained in the Roman culture, and so he's taking a big step in being very strategic about how he addresses slavery. And he starts in the New Testament the way we have it by talking about the relationship between masters and servants. And he even goes so far as to say, servants, you know, obey your masters, but obey as unto the Lord. You're a believer now. Well, how you act will have an effect on your master. And so he's, he's in no way condoning slavery, but he's saying, while we have it, here is my, here is my commendation. Uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament, in no way condones slavery. Paul said several things about slavery, but he couldn't have been any more clear than in Galatians chapter 3. And Paul, you remember Galatians is about the difference between Jews and Greeks, right? Jews and Gentiles, you remember? And he was saying when you come to Christ, all bets are off. 
He says, it doesn't matter who you were, now it's who you are in Christ. And here's what he says in Galatians chapter, he just comes out and says it here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We're all the same. There's no title, right? There's no title in Christ. There's no background in Christ that is an advantage over another background. When we come to Christ, we're brothers and sisters done, right? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We're all wearing the same clothes. We all look like Jesus now in some heavenly reality. And then he goes and he just says it. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Same. There's neither slave nor free. That would have been a radical thing to say. Scandalous. There's neither male nor female. We're the same. Gentlemen, listen to me. Girls are people too. Get over it, man. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The most heinous and despicable part of our history as a country is the slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, I'm ashamed. Ruthless, murderous kidnappers went substantially to Africa and conquered people. And put them in the bottom of ships for a perilous passage in which some of them died, but that was considered part of the economic loss. My God. Is that really part of our flag? Is that really part of one nation under God? I think that the abolition of slavery in America in 1865, I believe, was the most righteous thing we have ever done as a nation. But while slavery was abolished, the very serious problem of racial divide was certainly not solved, was it? We are still in very, very deep trouble, beloved. And you don't have to be a sociologist to understand that our serious racial divides can be traced back to slavery. We're really not enough generations away from it to be completely healed. Just a few generations ago, people were allowed to be bought and sold on the basis of the color of their skin. My two grandfathers were, were career prison guards in upstate New York. In Denimora and Sing Sing, the tough prisons... 
and the stuff I used to have to listen to them say about people of color. God, I repent for them. Can I do that? I'm so grateful for my parents, just one generation. They just said, all of us kids, that's not right. I'm so grateful for them that they, that's not right. But I'm just one generation removed. God, I have a question for you today. Where are you on this issue, really? Where are you, regardless of what shade you see when you look at your arm, where are you on this issue? Because if you ever draw a single conclusion about a person based on the shade of their skin, then you are in sin, and I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent and fall on your face before God and seek His forgiveness. You are eternally, in this respect, outside of the will of God, and you are caught up in the agenda of Satan, who means to bring hatred and death into the same world that God wants to use us to bring love and life. If you think racial prejudice is no big deal, then you are absolutely wrong. It affects you now, and it'll affect you later. It affects you now. If, if you harbor this racial prejudice, you, you're affecting your witness. Whether you say anything or not, you're affecting the way that you connect with people. But what about later? Well, say I'm going to heaven after this because Jesus died for my... You think about what heaven's going to be like? Anybody giving any thought to that? I see over and over again, it seems just so repulsive to me, this ridiculous notion that heaven will be mostly populated by white Americans wearing Make America Great Again ball caps. God, help us. Nothing could be further from the truth. Would you indulge me a little bit while I illustrate this? I'm about to go out of my mind here, all right? Can you bear some insanity with me for just a few minutes so I can illustrate this from the Bible? Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 9 and 10. Now, you know Revelation is substantially a, a, a description of what the Apostle John saw when he was taken into heaven and allowed to see what heaven looks like. You know this, right? Well, listen to this part of the description in verse 9. He said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. 
they were wearing white robes and were holding, that's the look of, that's the robes of Christ, and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where we're going. Would you notice something with me? There was something about John's ability to see these people I, that allowed him to see that they were from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. There was something about what John was allowed to see that caused him to notice the profound diversity of the ethnicity of the people who were there. Am I right? You, are we Bible-believing Christians, or are we just going to cross this part out? Okay. Well, with that in mind, then, since that appears to be something that's noticed in heaven, would you please indulge me with some ridiculous math? I'm about to do some ridiculous math for you. I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. So, what percentage of heaven, I wonder, is going to be white Americans? Well, let's just think about that for a second, and let's start by saying that six, only 6% of the world's population is, is American. It's from the U.S., only 6%. What? 6%! 6! Hello? We're 6% of the world's population, and we use 24% of the world's resources. 6% of the... If we're only 6% of the world's population, how much population is left? Uh, the Westsiders are getting out their phones, <laughs> taking off their shoes. 94%. Are not Americans. I had a news flash for you, beloved. Our world is not the world. <laughs> At best, then, 6% are going to be from America. Okay? Well, let's do, we've got to factor in something else, and that is that we have only been a nation for 10% of church history, right? So assuming, we're just making this assumption that people are coming evenly to the Lord, and so 10% of the world's population, of, of, of church history have been Americans, so that means that 0.6% of, of the American population has the opportunity to rep be represented in heaven. 06 Hello? Okay, let's do one more factor. Currently, America is 77% Caucasian, and I'm just hammering on you white people because I'm white, all right? 70% uh, of the population. So let's say that's three quarters. So that means 0.45% of heaven's population will be white flag-waving Americans. That is less than one-half of 1%. That means if you thought you were going to be surrounded by your Republican buddies, i got to tell you something. i got to tell you this. You're going to have to talk to over 200 people before you find somebody like yourself. Hello? 
Do not confuse your patriotism with your faith. Do not confuse those things. They are not the same thing. What this tells me is that, you know, I'm just thinking about how many people are going to speak English. He said every language, right? Are you ready? Prepare to gasp. Jesus never spoke a word of English. Paul never spoke a word of English. John, Peter, Ignatius, Tertullian, Polycarp, Augustine, they never spoke a word of English. How can I be so sure? Because English has only been a language on the planet for a thousand years. It wasn't even available when they were here. Where do we get this crazy notion? Another thing you got to know is that the epicenter of Christendom is no longer of European descent. The epicenter of Christendom has moved to the southern hemisphere and Holy Spirit is doing more in South America, Africa, and southern Asia than he ever is doing in North America or the northern hemisphere. We are not sitting in the pilot seat anymore. Countries in South America are sending missionaries to the United States. If you're a person who has derived your understanding of what heaven will be like from those Lily White Courier and Ives pictures, I have some very important news for you. If what I said is true, what the Bible says is true, then I am headed toward a heaven where because of my skin, I will be the radical minority forever. Does that change your heart at all? If racial prejudice is any part of your worldview... I have one word for you. Repent. Some of you are ready to come home. Some of you are ready to stop running. Some of you are just something going on inside you right now. I'm a runner. Sometimes we run on purpose. We go, I'm just going to get away from this God thing. We try to run. Sometimes we run by making ourselves exceptions. You know, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not what it means for me. We're running. Sometimes we make, we run by neglect and we just say, I don't need to read my Bible. I don't have time to go to home group to be involved in people's lives. I don't have time for that. We're running. Sometimes we're running because we become suddenly aware of this area in our lives that we need to repent of. Well, if you're a runner today, I just want to tell you it's time to come home. Come on home. Come on home. Maybe you're somebody who's never asked Christ into your life today before. Well, today, come on. Come home. How do I get home? How does anybody get home? You get home by way of the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross. That's how we go home. That's how this sin is conquered. That's how this life is changed by the power of the cross. 
You're a fugitive from righteousness. You're running from righteousness. You need to turn and go back to the cross and receive His righteousness. Last week, Pastor Christian referenced a great preacher named Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century preacher. And by the time he was 22 years old, he was preaching to 6,000 people in the morning and 6,000 people on Sunday nights. That was before the invention of a microphone. They asked him, what's your secret? And one time he answered, he says, no matter what text I'm preaching from, I always, he said, I always make a beeline to the cross. What's a beeline? A beeline is simply this, that when a forager bee is out looking for nectar and finds this rich field of flowers, it goes right straight back to the hive and demonstrates a behavior I already called a waggle dance. And that gets the other bees excited and they follow that bee straight to the field of nectar. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That is a beeline. The bee found something that he had to tell the others about. I need to tell you There's power in the cross. I've been to the cross, and it's where you want to be. It's how we come home. There's power in the cross. That's how we come home. No matter how far, if we're running, we look, and I'm not home, we need to come to the cross. And do I have good news for you today? We just happen to have one. We just happen to have a place where you can come home to. It's right here. The cross of Jesus Christ gave his life. The Bible says his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood that was shed on that day was shed once and for all, and it's always where we come home to. It's where our home is. When we're out, it's because we're not home. And some of you right now, you want to stop running, you want to turn, you want to come home. Come on. Your prayer is between you and God. I'm not going to ask you where you've been. I'm just, it's between you and God. Just come home. Maybe you're a person today who says, I want Jesus Christ in my life as my Savior. Come on. Come home. Maybe you're a person today who says, I, 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 I do have racial prejudice in my heart. I harbor that prejudice. Come on home. Come on home. Get the power of the cross on that. Whatever your situation is, whatever it is that's stirring inside of you that says, I'm not home, I'm on the run, come on home. The cross is home. Come on home. Sometimes we just get struck. I get struck with a sense of my own arrogance. And I go, I got to get home. I just got to get home. I got to get home. I got to get kneeling before the cross. I just got to get home. Sometimes I found, find myself caught up in the perspective of the world. I go, how did I get here? I, I know I just got to come home. Come on home. Come on home. I love the cross. I, I can't. It's just unfathomable to think of what Jesus Christ did for us. Perfect Lamb of God. I love the cross. It's our only hope. But it's all we need. So just come on home. Church, shall we stand together, please?